This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome along to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. This week, as the world finally gets to enjoy the Tokyo Olympics, we're taking a look at some of the British athletes from Olympics past who've been honoured with blue plaques at their former London homes. And as we're about to discover, this includes a diverse array of athletes. Joining us to explain more about these Olympic greats who paved the way for the Team GB athletes competing in Japan are two historians for the Blue Plaque Scheme, Howard Spencer. Hello. And Dr. Rebecca Preston. Hello. Hello. Howard, before we get into the lives and London locations of these sports people, is it true that London itself is a record holder when it comes to the Olympics? Yes, it is for the moment anyway. It's hosted the Games three times, and that's more than any other, in 1908, 1948, and of course 2012. It's not destined to hold that title for too much longer, because Paris is going to catch up in 2024, and then Los Angeles will have held the Games three times by 2028 as well. Did Britain produce many world-class athletes during the first few Games in the 20th century? There were a few across a number of sporting disciplines. There was no sort of sustained dominance of the sort that we've seen from other countries over the years. The first UK Olympic winner was a chap called John Pius Boland, who won golds at tennis in, in 1896. He was actually Dublin-born, so he's, he's United Kingdom in, in the definition of the time, mm. but he wouldn't be now. And he later went on to become an MP for John Redmond's Irish Nationalist Party in supporter of Home Rule. Another early tennis success was Dolly Lambert Chambers, about whom we'll be saying a bit more later. Furthermore, there was Queenie Newell, who won gold at archery at the London 1908 Olympics at the grand age of 53. She's still the oldest female winner of a gold medal. And at the same Olympics, 1908, Madge Sires bagged a gold at figure skating. But perhaps the biggest success of those early years was a chap called Henry Taylor of Chatterton near Oldham. He was a freestyle swimmer. And he got three gold medals at the 1908 Olympics. And that stood as a British record until Chris Hoy in 2012. And uh, he appeared in four Olympic Games overall. That's pretty remarkable for um, back then, really. I suppose the competition might have been a bit less, you could say. And the nutrition and uh, sports science was probably not there. But even so, that's a pretty remarkable collection of achievements there. How many former Olympians are then recognised with blue plaques as a result of these kinds of achievements? Well, under the London Blue Plaque Scheme, which is run by English Heritage, there are six. I mean, uh, Henry Taylor, who I mentioned, does actually have a blue plaque on Chatterton Baths, where he did a lot of his training. But of course, that's that's uh, up in up near Oldham, and that's not part of our scheme. So we've got six, plus a very important athletics coach who facilitated a number of winners. Yes, and we're going to talk about that soon. So let's talk about some of the British heroes from Olympics past, starting with our first person, which is Harold Abrahams, who was a sprinter and a long jumper. Rebecca, what was his London connection, this Harold Abrahams? Well, his early years were actually spent in Bedford. He was born there in 1899 to a Polish-Jewish immigrant father, and he and went to school there and came to London in, in about uh, 1914 at the beginning of the war and in 1919 went up to Cambridge to read law but where he was already excelling in various athletic competitions and after Cambridge he, he settled in London. 
He's also referenced in the 1981 film Chariots of Fire, which would obviously link into Cambridge and those those images of the colleges around there. Why did he feature in the story? That's right. He's one of two principal characters portrayed in the film, and he was played by the late Ben Cross. Abrahams had won the gold medal for the 100 metres at the, the Paris Games in 1924 in which he spectacularly matched the record of 10.6 seconds in all three rounds and became the first European to win an Olympic sprint title. And this triumph was captured in the film with some artistic license and brought Abraham's legacy to a a new audience in the 1980s. Where is his blue plaque situated in London? His plaque is at number two Hodderford Road, which is a suburban street in Golders Green. And it's on the house in which he was living with his widowed mother, Esther, at the time of his Olympic success of 1924. So that's very timely. In fact, the following year, he had a a very serious leg injury, which put paid to his athletic career. But he did go on to be a very successful barrister. He was called to the bar in 1924 and a journalist and athletics administrator whilst living in London. He had this coach, didn't he, also featured in the film, who's recognised with a blue plaque at his former London home. Who was the coach? Well, this was uh, the coach I was referring to just now. This is Sam Musabini. Uh, his name was actually Scipio Africanus Musabini. Uh, Sam was from his initials. In the film, he's played by Ian Holm, who got a BAFTA for it and was Oscar nominated. So Sam Musabini was born in Blackheath. His father was Syrian-Italian, his mother was French, and he's been described as the first modern athletics coach. By 1913, he was working for a club called the Polytechnic Harriers, and in that year, he published a book called The Complete Athletic Trainer. He also coached cycling and wrote a book about billiards called Billiards Expounded to All Degrees of Amateur Players. Something of a sporting entrepreneur, I suppose you could call him. Yeah, and that made him special as a coach, did it? Or were there other things that made him special? I think as as a running coach, the special things were his concentration on things like stride length and arm swing. He developed something that was known as the poly swing after the the Polytechnic Harriers Club. And also, very key, he was pioneering in his use of cine film to analyse athletes' technique and, and so on. And really, his record spoke for itself. Six of his athletes won a total of five gold, two silver and four bronze medals in track events at the Olympics during the 1920s. So that's the 2024 and 28 games. We take uh, mobile phone cameras and and these would be used in sports and, and studying athletes. In some respects, Sam Musabini was a pioneer in, in the use of these tools. Absolutely. I mean, he, he moved the game on and that, that's always something that we're sort of looking for in, in awarding uh, Blue Plaques. Or rather, the, the committee that does the awarding is, is looking for people that are responsible for these kind of innovations. Yeah. Um, he also, also key in, in, in the award of Blue Plaques is a good link to London and, and Musabini lived most of his life in London and he had several addresses in Brixton and in Hearn Hill. And his plaque is in Hernhill at 84 Burbage Road with the Hernhill Velodrome just over the back garden wall. That's actually where he trained his athletes on the cinder track that ran inside where the, where the cyclists go. Let's move on to our next hero of Olympics past then. And our next medalist who has a blue plaque, Rebecca, is who? He is Philip Noel Baker, who was born in 1889. And he was a runner who also ran for political office, so a sportsman and a statesman, and he was elected to Parliament in 1929. Multi-talented, you might say. 
He was also a peace campaigner and believed profoundly that sport could play a beneficial role in fostering good international relations. Which Olympics did he compete in then? He'd been a finalist in the 1912 Stockholm Olympics and then in 1920 he captained the British Olympic team and won a silver medal for Britain in the 1500 metre race. And his blue plaque, whereabouts is that? It's on number 16 South Eaton Place in Belgravia and this is the house where he lived from around the time of the Second World War. But before that he'd lived nearby at number 43 and he moved to number 16 to live with fellow Nobel Prize campaigner Lord Robert Cecil, to whom he was private secretary. This is where another blue plaque fits into the story at that same property, doesn't it? That's right. They're both there together. Cecil himself had played a vital part in setting up the League of Nations after World War I. And his plaque was actually put up at the request of Noel Baker in 1976. So it's rather nice to see the two friends and colleagues commemorated together there. We do have 19 instances of pairs of blue plaques, in fact, so it does does come up a bit, although very often there is no actual relationship between the two people commemorating. I mean, this is, this is a bit more unusual in that sense. OK, well, let's move on to our next former Olympic great, Jack Beresford. He was, I suppose you could say, the Sir Steve Redgrave of his day. What can you tell us about him and what was he famous for, Howard? Well, he was a, a rower, as, as you've kind of already said, or an oarsman, if you prefer that term. Born and raised in Chiswick in West London by the River Thames, a good place to be for somebody with that sort of enthusiasm. His birth name was actually Jack Beresford Wisniewski. His father was a furniture maker originally from Poland. And apart from his Olympic exploits, he won the Great Britain Amateur Sculling Competition for seven consecutive years during the 1920s. Uh, He was also a frequent winner at Henley Regatta. There's something also quite important about this chap in terms of how he might relate to Sir Steve Redgrave today, because he really had a, a remarkable medal haul, didn't he? And he attended a lot of games. That's right. Well, he, he, he was at five, and that's the, the record that Redgrave broke in, in 2000 at the Sydney game, he, or, or rather equaled it. Uh, it wasn't equaled until then. And across those five games, he won three gold medals, the last of which was at his final games in 1936, which, of course, were the notorious games in Germany. Mm. And he beat the German team in the Double Skulls event there in front of a watching Adolf Hitler. And he pronounced it to be the sweetest race I ever rode in. The Germans had a sort of a a nickname for him, didn't they, at that stage? Because he was in the the twilight of his career. Yes, they called him the Old Fox, which was fairly accurate. He was was a, a very sort of cunning player, not averse to slight elements of gamesmanship, sort of giving people the sickly smiles in the, in the boat next door to, uh, to put them off their stroke a bit. Yeah, I like that. That's, that's, that's pretty useful. So where did his talent for rowing come from? He obviously achieved a lot in his career, but it, it all started from somewhere. Well, it, it kind of came about through, through happenstance. He was actually, as a, as a younger man, he was much keener on rugby. That's sort of where he was heading. But he served during World War One and was wounded in the leg in France, and that sort of put an end to the rugby. And rowing was prescribed as part of his rehabilitation, and it all went from there. Jack Beresford also played a part in the organising committee for the 1948 Austerity Games. Rebecca, you know a bit about this. What can you tell us? Yes, Jack was a member of the British Olympic Council from 1936. And in 1948, he helped to organise the Games in London and, appropriately enough, in Henley-on-Thames. The 48 Games were nicknamed the Austerity Games because, of course, Britain was still under rationing. 
And these were the second Olympics to be held in London and the first Summer Olympics since the 1936 Games that Howard was just talking about in Berlin. There weren't many medals for the UK in 48, but it's, the event was a breath of sporting and cultural fresh air for the host nation, and it helped to foster good international relations in the post-war years. I can imagine there would have been a, a significant loss of sporting talent, potentially through you know, loss of life, through the services. That's right, and it was also rather a sort of make-do-and-mend Olympics. There were no new buildings. It was often in army huts, mm. so it was a, a, a pulling together. Did Jack Beresford remain a sportsman after his Olympic retirement? Uh, yeah, very much so. He continued to race in boats. He also enjoyed swimming and beagling. And uh, as well as the Olympic roles, he had other sort of administrative sporting roles, such as steward at Henley Regatta and, and so on. This is something that we see even today, don't we, with um, Seb Coe being high up in the uh, IOC and this sort of thing. So I suppose um, once you've been a sportsman, you can sort of end up in sporting management. Um, well, it's, it's a natural progression for many people, uh, mm. people that wish to sort of continue to be to be linked with the sport that they've uh, you know made their name in. Quite, quite a natural thing to do. And Beresford's uh, blue plaque, we should mention the address of that, it's at 19 Grove Park Gardens by the river in Chiswick. And that's where he was living during his Olympic triumphs. He was actually born in St Mary's Grove in Chiswick, just around the corner. I suppose in some respects, being so near the river, being near his Olympic achievements, that's a really nice touch, isn't it, for his particular memory? It is. It's, it's always good to kind of be able to put plaques in, in places that have lots of different resonances, and that's a particularly good one. Well, Rebecca, let's move on now to talk about some of the blue plaque sportswomen, starting with Dorothea Lambert Chambers. She was a seven-time Wimbledon champion, and she was the only British woman to achieve that feat. So where did her career in lawn tennis start? It began in London. Dorothea Douglas, as she was before her marriage, joined Ealing Common Lawn Tennis Club as a child, and she actually won her first championship at the age of 14. But she'd begun to play even earlier than that in the back garden of the vicarage of St Matthew's Ealing Common, which is where she grew up. Her father was the vicar. Right. And a tennis court took up much of their garden, and she tells us in her book Lawn Tennis for Ladies that it was hemmed in by gooseberry bushes. (laughs) Okay, so if you lost the ball, you'd have to go and dive into the gooseberry bush and try and find it. Which Olympics did she play at then? She won the gold medal at the London Games of 1908. So she's another early Olympian. She was born in 1878. And she was famed for her tricky drop shot winners. And she also, as you, as you say, took seven Wimbledon singles titles between uh, 1903 and 1914, um, which I believe remains a record for Britain. Five doubles triumphs and also played competitive badminton and hockey. So an all-round sportswoman, really, and, and especially with a racket. But she was also very long-lived, her, her career. In 1919, at, at the age of 40, Mrs Lambert Chambers, as she was known after her marriage, she only narrowly lost in a legendary final to Suzanne Lenglon, a French woman who was half her age and was wearing considerably less restrictive clothes. And Dorothea wore a shirt buttoned to the wrists and a calf-length skirt, which must have been very trying to play in in what was some incredibly hot summers in those Edwardian years. So do you think that her loss was as a result of her attire? It can't have helped, but she had managed very well before that. I mean, what's remarkable isn't that she lost, it's that she very nearly won. Right. um, Given her age and her attire. 
yeah. than another case of where the plaque is in a very appropriate place, given her early training at um, in Ealing, and the plaque is upon the vicarage, which is at number seven North Common Road in Ealing. Do we know if the property still has a tennis court in the in the back garden? I couldn't see it when I did look on Google Earth the other day. Okay. I think that's been built on, uh, I believe so. Going back to Dorothea's uh, attire, um, there's there's pictures of her around which show her also wearing a tie, um, and she also uh, sports a a sort of cable cardi in some of the uh, shots of her, but I I imagine she may have uh, discarded that before she actually took to the court. Yeah, so it doesn't look like ideal wear for um, sporting victory. But um, she's joined by another British tennis pioneer in that period who also has a London blue plaque, and this is Kathleen Godfrey. They were contemporaries, weren't they? Yeah, Kathleen, generally known as Kitty, was a, a name that the press affixed on her. She wasn't that keen on it. The family tended to call her Biddy. So we, we, we compromised on the plaque. We've called her Kitty on there just because that's how most people know her. That's how history knows her, really. But we've got Kathleen on there, too. Mm. She was a little bit younger than uh, Dorothea Lambert Chambers, a sort of a generation coming up. And her successes were in the 20s when Dorothea Lambert Chambers was was winding down. And she wore considerably uh, less constricting attire. Skirt still came below the knee, but it wasn't right down to the ankles. So she would have been a lot more mobile on court. How good a player was Kathleen Kitty Godfrey when we compare her to the greats of today? Pretty good. She was rated number two in the world at one stage during the 20s. It was possibly her misfortune to have as contemporaries Suzanne Lenglen, who we've mentioned already, the French woman, and Helen Wills Moody, who were probably on balance a bit better than her for most of the time. But she did beat Helen Wills Moody to the 1924 Wimbledon title, and she also won Wimbledon in 1926. And she lived till she was 96, played tennis till she was 92, and notably against a, a former rival, Jean Barotra, in 1988. And she remained a, a regular at Wimbledon. I mean, I well remember seeing her. Her arrival was always sort of commented on by Dan Maskell and going back to the, uh, the 80s and so on. Yes. And in 1986, she was chosen to present the uh, singles trophies, it being Wimbledon's centenary year. So um, she was playing until she was 92. That's remarkable, isn't it? It is extraordinary. And there's a very nice quote from her from 1984 when she was she was being interviewed. And she said, competitors are so competitive these days, aren't they? <laughs> Bit of a different world. Yes, but her Olympic achievements were fairly remarkable, weren't they? Well, remarkable and enduring. She won five Olympic medals across the Games of 1920 and 24, including gold in the women's doubles in Antwerp in 1920. And the five medals stands as a joint record with Venus Williams. Yes. So, I mean, in terms of titles, as good as Venus Williams, who we're all familiar with today. Absolutely. Yes. And I think it's, it's notable that overall Great Britain has done quite well in tennis at the Olympics. The problem is that tennis was actually not an Olympic sport for nigh on 60 years, mm. meaning that people like Fred Perry, who came to the fore in the 1930s and, and, and also has a plaque in Ealing, incidentally, missed out on it. We've said in a previous podcast that um, tennis was a good way of meeting a partner both on court and for life. Kitty's husband, did he also play? Yes, he, he did, until a high standard. Leslie Godfrey, and they actually won the mixed doubles together in 1926 at Wimbledon, having married earlier that year. And they remain the only married couple to have done that. So another record that she still holds. <laughs> um, they went on to run the West Kensington Tennis Club together. 
And again, I should mention the location of her, her plaque, uh, which is on a house that she lived in for very many years, which is 55 York Avenue in East Sheen. And is that a residential, I suppose it's a fairly residential area still? It is. I mean, actually, the, the house uh, remains very much as, as she would have known it. Lastly, then, we're going to move away from tennis and uh, talk about uh, a sport that has a real knockout punch. So it's boxing, of course. Harry Mallon is our man. And Howard, you know about Harry Mallon's background. What can you tell us about his Olympic career? Well, you, you mentioned knockouts. Actually, he was he was known for sort of rather more subtle approach. He was described as the, quote, professor of the sweet science of boxing. And he tended to win on points. Uh, and he won a lot. He's probably one of Britain's most successful amateur boxers ever. It's a shame his name isn't better known, really. He was born in Hoxton, raised in Hackney Wick, belonged to the Eaton Manor Sports Club, played various sports as a young man, including football and so on. He's interesting because unlike all the people we've discussed so far, he was from a genuine working class background. Everyone else was you know, rather comfortably off, as indeed they really had to be to play uh, amateur sport to a high level. Malin wasn't. He was, he was a Met policeman, spending much of his time in the force uh, as a PT instructor, latterly. His Olympic uh, feats, which were achieved while he was a serving policeman, were gold at middleweight in the Olympics of 1920 and 24. And that's uh, a record, two consecutive golds. That stood until Nicola Adams, most recently, equaled it. Talk a little bit more about Malin's victory in 1924, which had an air of controversy to it. He was up against, he was in Paris, up against the local favourite, Roger Bruce, who was originally said to have won the fight. But on appeal, it was noted that Malin had teeth marks on his trunk and he was able to show this to the referee and mm. Bruce was disqualified to much dissatisfaction from the uh, crowd. Ah, so that made him the champion, obviously. It did, and he went on to manage the boxing teams at the 1936 and 1952 Olympics. You mentioned, obviously, the bite marks there, which caused him to be crowned Olympic champion. Did he suffer any other injuries as sports people generally do? Well, his major injury that had actually wasn't in the ring, and he was training to be a policeman during World War One. He was posted to the Resyth shipyard in Scotland, and he, he suffered an accident there, a leg injury that needed 73 stitches. But that didn't stop him being undefeated in 350 amateur bouts. And did he continue boxing well after his Olympic career had ended? No, he pretty much packed it up. I mean, he, he went on to sort of become, a, as I said, a, a PT instructor in the Met. And he became, a, a, again, a figure, as we've seen with some of the others, he, he, he joined sort of administrative um, areas and he managed the teams at the 1936 and 52 Olympics. Is his police service reflected in his blue plaque? And, and where is that? It is mentioned on it. And that seemed important because all his East London addresses having gone, the plaque is on a building called Peel House at 105 Regency Street in Pimlico. And it's a block of flats that was formerly a police section house meaning it was quarters for unmarried officers and, and often rather Spartan facilities too. Malin was living there by the time of his 1924 triumph and he stayed there for 17 years. So we've covered now all these Olympians. Is English Heritage planning to put up any more blue plaques for former sporting greats to tie in with Tokyo 2020 or should we say 2021? Well, unfortunately, we don't have anything quite on the blocks yet. There is there is one I'd like to mention that we've been trying to put up for years, which is to a real sporting all-rounder. And that's Lottie Dodd, who's quite an extraordinary uh, person from the later 19th century and early 20th century. She won Wimbledon aged 15 in 1887, still the youngest winner of the, of the ladies' singles there. 
She was British champion at golf in 1904, twice capped for England at hockey, playing inside right, and she took the silver in archery at 1908. That's the same games where Queenie Newell took the gold. Um, Lossie was also into mountaineering, skiing, skating. She's really quite an extraordinary figure. Originally from Cheshire, but she lived in Earl's Court from the 1920s, and we are still trying to get that plaque up. So watch this space. How are you going to get all those sports on the blue plaque? She did a lot. (laughs) I think we're going to call her Sporting All Rounder. I think that was the idea. Well, we'll look forward to um, that one being announced. Also, one of the things I'd like to discuss, if people didn't know about this, how do you get a blue plaque at a former London home if you're a famous person, sports person or otherwise? What's the criteria? The criteria are that the individual should have made a great and lasting impact on society in their field of enterprise and have made a positive contribution to human welfare or happiness. They should also, very importantly, have been deceased for more than 20 years. And finally, the London building in which they lived or worked must still survive and also be in a form which the recipient would recognise, so not hugely changed. Oh, right. I didn't really appreciate that final touch there, which is that almost if they were still alive, they would recognise the places where they actually lived. That's right. So not rebuilt. And certainly we don't put put up plaques on sites of places. So out of all the um, former Olympic greats that we've talked about, I think anyone listening to this can gain an appreciation for the trailblazing way that they carried out their achievements, either at Olympic level or in domestic competition or international competition that wasn't Olympic. Do you have any particular favourites having researched these people and spoken about it today? My own favourite would be um, Harry Mallon, purely because he seems to be so unsung, considering um, what he did, considering how long his his record stood and so on. And Rebecca? Oh, it has to be Dorothea Lambert-Chambers. For any particular reason? The tennis attire, perhaps? (laughs) The tennis attire and the sheer hard work and determination. She was very much someone that was practice, practice, practice. Mm. Um, Believe in just innate skill. You had to put the hours in. And I think that seven-time Wimbledon champion thing is, and the only British woman to have that feat, is quite a remarkable legacy for female tennis, uh, both here in the UK and internationally. Yes, absolutely remarkable is the word I'd choose too. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be back to discuss the Dark Ages and why this problematic term used to characterise the Middle Ages is being consigned to history. There are a host of other terms, depending on which parts of these islands you're talking about and in which centuries between the 5th and 11th centuries. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>